Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for March of 2011. I am writer-critic-internet meme Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... Hi everybody, I'm a writer-director-mind-bending-vision-of-reality no, writer, uh, from the director of Watchmen and 300, Paul Anthony Nelson. And uh, our very special guest is... I am Kate McCurdy, a hyphen marketing manager at Shamil Films, hyphen movie lover. That's such a coincidence because my girlfriend actually has the exact same job as you and looks exactly like you. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's crazy coincidence. All right, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, and Pleasure. yes, the films of... March included, mm. uh, just to go alphabetically, because that's kind of how I wrote them down, Adjustment Bureau, which I thought was, uh, I thought the trailer looked terrible for this. I thought it was going to hit every cliche I had about science fiction films, and it didn't. I thought, think it's really, it's really smart science fiction and one of the better Philip K. Dick adaptations. Trailer didn't look like science fiction at all. Exactly. It looked like a romance. It is a romance, but it's written by somebody who is interested in science fiction. Usually these things mm. are written by people who just want to get the, the science fiction out of the way to get to the romance. Mm. But you could tell Nolfi had a real interest in it. So I give him four points. And it was his for first that. film as a director, too. Yeah, yeah. And pulls it off okay? Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think it's terrific. I think it maybe lags a little right at the end. Mm. But overall, I think it's, it's quite a good effort. Um, Have you, you seen it, Kate? Oh, yeah, I did see it. And... Um Look, I enjoyed it on the whole, but actually, just thinking back, I did find it a bit forgettable. Like, and um, I, I thought that the moments that were meant to have a lot of tension, I didn't really feel anything, particularly when Terence Stamp is sort of on the march, you know, after them, and I just didn't really feel anything. But the Thomas Newman score was just a wonderful surprise, and that really actually kept my interest more than a lot of the, <laughs> what was being said in the film. So. You're beginning to sound like Lee, too. <laughs> My Thomas, Thomas Newman, Newman obsession coming through. <laughs> and yeah. you didn't tell me... I didn't know it had the stamp of appro- stamp of awesome approval in it. That was the only bit of character motivation I didn't really understand, because if Terence Stamp was coming after me, I'd just stand still and let him get me, <laughs> and then make him do quits from the limey. <laughs> so that made no sense to me whatsoever. Now, Girl Who Cooked the Hornet's Nest, part three of the Girl Who Did Things trilogy. Mm. i got to say, I'm not a huge fan of any of these films. I think they're okay. Uh, they're fine, but they really they just feel like airport novels to me, and I've never really been engaged with any of them. It's funny, because when I saw the original, the first film in cinemas, um, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the opinion on them was fairly high, but now there seems to have been that sort of critical backlash as more people have seen them, and now everybody's kind of like, oh, they're just trash. I thought the first film was fantastic. I, there was something very... I know they're all Swedish television movies, but there was something very cinematic about the first one. And those cinematic qualities have been sorely lacking in the in the two since. Um, I thought Hornet's Nest was better than Played With Fire. Played With Fire just felt like a very rote kind of television movie. This third one, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's swallowed up by courtroom drama and what have you. Um, it does. But, but you know what? It moves fairly well. It's entertaining. I love the two main characters, um, and I think they're beautifully played. I think, I think Numi Rapace has got a big future in front of her and Blomquist is great as well and I had fun with it it wasn't extraordinary um, it's it's like the first one was a, was just a really gutsy thriller the second one was a decent TV movie this one was a very very good TV movie fair enough have you yeah have you oh, I've only seen the first one I haven't really been tempted to keep oh, going really I've been told to read either. the books every time I say that so maybe one day but I've yeah not in the cinema yeah I have I have heard as you know matter of course the books are better 
Mm. Not read them. One thing that did impress me this month quite a lot was uh, Howl, mm. the, the film about uh, Ginsberg and his, his brilliant poem. There was, it's a really interesting approach they've taken. It's made by uh, some people who are typically documentary makers. Mm. And that's really good because they don't need, feel the need to conform to the standard narrative tricks and thus alter the facts of, the, uh, of, of what happened in order to fit uh, a pre-established narrative. Yeah, I felt that that was almost one of its issues. I liked everything that was happening, but there was no dramatic thrust. There was no momentum to get me through the movie. It was kind of interesting things happening in front of me. and Because, no, you know, it's basically broken up into uh, flashbacks of Ginsburg reading Howl for the first time in front of a cafe crowd. It's the um, Ginsburg doing an interview after all is said and done in the 1970s. Looking and sounding a lot like a young Francis Ford Coppola to me. Mm. And then, you know, the, uh, the trial of uh, City Lights publisher Lawrence Ferlinghetti um, over, you know, the obscenity trials, in which Ginsburg appears in none of that, um, the, the court sequences. So, like, having Ginsburg missing for a whole bunch of the film is kind of strange. But, yeah, I just felt it was all very interesting, very entertaining, and played by magnificent actors. Um, I was getting a kick out of John Hamm flashing his Don Draper, his disapproving what the hell Don Draper. That's Don actually Draper. one of my problems with the film was that every actor there seems to have been transplanted directly out of another film in which another period film. Yeah, it was like they watched Mad Men and then they watched Good Night and Good Luck and then they yeah. you know watched the Jimmy Dean biopic and they were like, yeah, hey, these are nineteen fifties people. We'll Except just- for Mary Louise Parker, who's playing completely the opposite of every character we've seen her in recently. Yeah, like she's true. sort of the button-down 50, I think this is obscene, mm. you know, and you'd normally think of her as stuff like reed, weeds and red, and, yeah. you know, she's quite modern and yeah. The an- Look, the animation was cool, like, it was all beautifully shot, it, like, it made me want to read more Ginsberg and, and really yeah. get into him, which I guess is, you know, a great legacy, but as a feature film, it lacked dramatic thrust, and I just sort of thought, um, why not film some of these bits and then make a documentary? Fair enough. What do you think, Kate? Oh, I went to see this with a wonderful friend of mine who is an expert on everything to do with the Beat Poets and the Beat Generation, and um, she was quite nervous going to see this and how James Franco would be portraying Ginsburg and everything, and she was um, couldn't fault it. She said even just coming down to his hand gestures and everything, Franco's performance was just like incredible and would have you know been a result of a lot of watching a lot of interviews and um you know really researching the role and i think um and look i really enjoyed it i only read how for the first time um a couple of days before i saw the film but the i really connected with the poem and it's made me really want to um investigate a lot more of um Ginsburg's work and also you know that of his um the all the people within that circle um yeah Kerouac and um and also, you know, those inspire, who do inspire the poem house. So um, so I really liked it for that. Um, I think Lee was saying um, after he saw, he saw it that the animation was a little bit anachronistic. Mm, and, that, yeah. and I thought if it – I agree with that. I think it does take you out of, you know, the world that they're trying to portray on the screen in the time. And if it had been something more like, a, you know, an older style kind of drawn animation that may have mm. – um, synced everything together a bit better. But on the whole, I really enjoyed it. That said, I am looking forward to Hal Legacy. (laughs) I think that's going to be amazing. Yeah, I just think that um, if... Yeah, because it was so kind of bitsy and episodic, um, the animation didn't pull me out of it as much. I thought if it was more a narrative, if it was more cohesive, more of a cohesive narrative, I think the animation would have pulled me out of the rest of it. But the fact the film was was divided into four very specific quarters... 
in terms of its style, um, it didn't bother me so much. Now, three Australian films came out this month. We had The Reef, which I was really looking forward to. Did that to, come but, out? Uh, that's the rumour. Yeah, I've heard this. Yeah. I saw um, it written on a bathroom stall. The Reef has come out. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, yeah, I've... Uh, I need a magnifying glass and a cut lunch to find it. There was so much amazing publicity for that film while they were shooting yes, it. Yes, like the webcast of On the Set. Yeah, and, but nothing at the moment, so... Uh, I mean, I know the, the, the cinema release is meant to be almost an ad for the DVD release for that mm. film, but... To have an ad to be effective, someone's got to know it's there, right? That's true. But other films which uh, were we did see were Griff the Invisible and Wasted on the Young. Mm. Of the two, I was looking forward to Griff the Invisible more and ended up liking Wasted on the Young a lot more. I preferred that one. Mm. Uh, I think Griff's a fantastic idea. I'm not really wild about the execution. I think it kind of falls short in a lot of areas. I think I have affection for it more than I enjoy watching it. Uh, whereas Wasted on the Young for its faults is a really cool sort of Lord of the Flies style. Uh, is it Lord of the Flies meets Cruel Intentions? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. That's that's a good description. Um, and yeah, I think it what it gets right vastly outweighs what it doesn't quite, what doesn't work. Mm. So yeah. I've been a bit resistant to Wasted on the Young because it feels like a film where I will spend the entire running time wanting to punch every lead character in the face. This is... I, I couldn't disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if I'm going to put myself through that, but one day. I, I, like, I've, I've heard mixed things, but it's, I'll take you on your uh, word and have a look at it someday. Griff the Invisible, I'm so, um, so glad that you said that because it seems like everybody's been in love with this film and I feel like the odd man out in the room. Mm. It is... I think you're right about being feeling affectionate. Mm. It is a very sweet film. In fact, the, the impression that um, got... Yeah, that it gave me more than anything else was that it is a massive throwback to 1990s Aussie comedies, to that sort of comedy of quirk. Um, it has the same gentle mood, it has the same skewed sensibility. You know, it, it very much wouldn't have been out of place made in about 1995. However, yeah, it is a great idea that I think the execution's a little wrong. I think it's a little thematically muddled. I think its message at the end is a little strange. Yeah. And... I don't know if it's appropriate or whether it's good because it's inappropriate or it's... I don't know, it just didn't sit well with me. There are a whole bunch of other films uh, out this month which we didn't see, so if there are any notable omissions, uh, it's purely down to us uh, not getting around to catching them, so apologies for that. But one big film we did see was Never Let Me Go. Now, I I really enjoyed uh, the book, uh, and I don't know how much that affected my viewing of the film because I came out of the film thinking, that was all right, That uh, that was fine. I like that. I wow, out. I thought it was a film you'd flip for. Yeah, so did I. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think the film really digs into the themes? Of Depends the, what you think the themes are. The uh, I, I didn't feel it did. Um, but, Kate, you have a very different reaction to me. Yeah, I, I was very moved by the film, actually. Um, it sort of really sort of came over me very sort of towards the end. And, um, I don't know, I just felt like tonally and everything... It, the, the film really captured a lot of what I felt from reading the book. Mark Romanek made, made a really beautiful film and um, and it just it, it looks amazing. And um, again, I'm going to bring up the score because Rachel Portman's score is one of the most beautiful I've heard in, in a while. And um, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I can't disagree from a technical standpoint. Mm. It's mm. it's a yeah, it, it captures it captures such a beautiful kind of serene kind of yet yeah, with darkness lurking beneath 
kind of mood, very foreboding, um, and the cinematography and the score are all gorgeous. It just didn't give me the gut punch, you know. I, I, I felt kind of removed from it, yeah. It, it felt like that looking at a beautiful object from the yeah. outside to me. Um, but, you know, there's just something intangible that the film lacked. Now, Miss McCurdy, we're on tenterhooks to find out who you have picked for your... Hell is for hyphenates, filmmaker of the month. All right, well, this will come as no surprise to anyone who knows me. Anyone that's passed you on the street. Mm, yeah, met me at a bus stop, made a telemarketing call to me. <laughs> oh, okay, it's it's Mike Lee. The uh, great Mike Lee. Yeah. Monu- Britain's revered monument, Mike Lee. I wanted just to talk a little bit about his method because I think that's what sets him apart from every other filmmaker and um, and also theatre director as well because he's worked as extensively for the stage as well as um, television and film. Um, he started in the stage, didn't he? He did, yes. That was sort of where he came from. Bleak Moments, his first feature was a stage play. I think um, he didn't have a totally organic film um, in that it, uh, it was only made for film until a few films in, so everything was sort of um, influenced by the stage early on. Mm. But um, he actually, um, he was studying, he went to RADA and then he went to an art school, I think London Art School, I may be wrong there, but, um, and he was in a life drawing class and he had a, an epiphany in that what he was drawing exactly what he saw as opposed to what he thought he saw and that was really, the, and he realised that was the kind of film that he wanted to make, he wanted to make a film of wow. characters and people as they are as opposed to, you know, writing a character so that and really bring that artificiality to it, you know, that it, when you're imposing your thoughts about something on something. Exactly. Back from that and just seeing the reality. And um, and working with the actors to on you know where they create uh, like he'll take an actor aside and he'll get them to talk about almost everyone they've ever met and so and then pull um, characteristics and um, you know gestures and just you know every tiny little detail about what that person could be and then that's sort of what informs um, that character. And it's all done through improvisations to start with and sometimes they can go for 10 hours straight and and then uh, per, they'll have... Per day? 10 hours per day, not 10 hours all up before? Oh, exactly, yes. Yeah. No, for, How for long one is rehearsal scene. period, generally? Well, what I... Um, it's sort of... I've read a lot of different accounts of it, but what I have come to sort of work out is that um, he'll re- they'll rehearse, you know, a number of scenes and then they'll film it and then they'll improvise, rehearse and then film, mm. I think. So the journey is like, it's a full journey. So it's not like they improvise and rehearse the, the entire film and then go and film. Like mm. to keep the reactions fresh. Absolutely, and, yeah. because the, it's all done from memory once um, the actors, they're there. There, are, there are no scripts that the actors work from. Really? Because I thought there was a, a point script. where they came up with stuff and then he wrote the script. He does, but and that's what they shoot from. But it's basically they work from their memories, so it's a very intensive process. And all this stuff about setting people out into the world as their characters and setting up organic mm. meetings, and they might not meet for days. Yeah, that's and true. Like, how long does all that take? Oh, that can take months. I think um, Leslie Manville talked about when she was she she has a role as a. Um, Gilbert's wife in Topsy Turvy and she didn't hear anything for months and then suddenly she'd get through her letterbox every day massive amounts of research about you know dentistry in Victorian times and things and she didn't know how that was going to fit into the film and then turns out that Gilbert has to have a tooth removed so they you know there's a lot of 
amazing detail that goes into everything. So it is a yeah. fascinating process. Mm. So it's something good to keep in mind. I think always when you watch a Mike Lee film is that there's so much. Every character has a backstory. For example, in, in Secrets and Lies, Roxanne, played by um, Claire Rushbrook, is um, Brenda Blethyn's daughter. They actually acted out one of her birthday parties when she was a child. And every event that any character makes reference to has ha- they has usually gone through an improvisation process. So it is all from memory. It's not anything just you know picked out of the air. It's mm. it's all this yeah. There's nothing that goes in the film. Mike Lee's not in control of as well, which is. Which is quite extraordinary, and it's the, the. I believe when people are cast, they don't always know whether they're going to be a major character or a minor character. That no, evolves absolutely. through the process, mm. which is something amazing. You sort of have to sign up on faith as an actor, mm. but then again, you're getting yeah. so much out of the experience. Yeah. And even if you're a minor character, you're being treated like a major character. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it's equally as. But there are apparently actors lining up around the block to be oh. in these films because of the process. Because no one else does what he does. Yet he still finds it hard to get funding. I mean, like a lot of you know he. Because he never know, he can never tell anyone what the film's going to be about, who the film's going to, who's mm. going to be in it. Yeah. Um, and it's the same case for his theatre work. He's doing a new play um, for the National Theatre, which I think is um, going to premiere in uh, September. And the director um, of National Theatre, Nicholas Heitner, still doesn't know what it's about. So, <laughs> wow. But he, you know, people who know him and you know, will yeah, you give him a anything. Reputation. You can do that. Yeah, it's it's. I believe uh, he was talking to the director, John Schlesinger, in the early 70s, yeah. after he made Bleak Moments, and, and Schlesinger said, your process is too convoluted. Like, it, 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 there's no way you're going to be able to sustain a movie career on this, on mm. your process. There's no way you're going to keep getting funding and keep getting these made. It's too long and intensive, and ten but features later, here we are. It's a, it's a crazy filmography. I like that he starts off with two titles that will <laughs> later come to uh, to sort of be the cliche of what his films are like bleak moments in 72 and then hard labor in 73 <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a oh god i almost said it's a very happy-go-lucky series <laughs> exactly. of titles isn't it um yeah. completely by accident bleak moments is interesting because it doesn't feel like a stage play mm. it doesn't feel mm. like a filmed play it's it makes a brave choice for a first-time filmmaker who was what 28 at the he time he was 28 yeah, yeah. um that I'm going to make a film about four people who can't communicate, or five people who can't communicate, and you know, and predicate the entire film on their silences and their halting, shifting movements. And how many first-time filmmakers have the confidence to do that? Really, the way he uses silence in this film, I think, is extraordinary. Like the first time I saw it, I found it almost unbearable to watch, and then as uh, now, I actually get a lot of enjoyment out of, you know, wanting to strangle. <laughs> like yeah. if there's one particular scene where it's just a series, like this montage of um, everyone just looking at each other or <laughs> looking so away or making tense. uncomfortable noises and or trying to say something and then stopping. And, um, yeah, and the only person who seems to have a lot of sense is um, Anne Rate's um, sister, Hilda, who is, actually has a mental disability. And, um, yeah, and she's just almost, you know, just remarking on it, going, "Whoa, what's going to happen next?" Kind of thing. Mm. She's yeah. the one looking around, actually, with some confidence, while everyone else. Is it's a surprisingly sweet film, though. Like mm. I, that, that's what I took away from it. Like it was quite sweet, which sort of goes against where you think the film is going for most of it. And that's that is a theme I feel he returns to that, you know, subversion of expectations. Because um, mm. I, I find I, I think in general I find that. I find people who can't communicate really frustrating. So I found the film really frustrating. It's possibly the hardest sit of any Mike Lee film 
that yeah. I've seen. But I do. I just admire the bravery of it as a first-time filmmaker, and it is. And I feel like, as you say, Kate, um, it feels like a film you get more out of the more you watch it I and get into yeah. its rhythm and its 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 groove. Um, yeah, it's. But it's uh, it's incredibly effective in its own way. Yeah. But then after that, he through circumstances, his work moved to television for the next seventeen years. Well, it's quite extraordinary because because um, Bleak Moments it um, it was shown at the London Film Festival, and it was actually came out the same week as Hitchcock's Frenzy, and there was um, a review in the Observer where um, they said Alfred Hitchcock's famous for treating his actors like cattle, and it and it shows, and that Mike Lee, however, doesn't does no such thing. And Roger Ebert called it a masterpiece as well. So it looked like, you know, Mike Lee was just going to, you know... Sweep the world, yeah. He's going to be the next great British film director. And And then then I think it was just, you know, the case of the um, British film industry at the time. And a lot of um, filmmakers had to go back into into television, like Ken Loach and Stephen Frears. Yeah, well, Frears is almost exactly the same, isn't he? He made one feature in, like, 1970 or 71 and then didn't make another until the mid to late 80s. That's correct. But then he went off to Hollywood and... Mm. Which is like one of the stark, you know, differences. But um, yeah, his next um, Lee's next film is called Hard Labor. But the working title is actually The Electric Weasel. He often had very odd titles for all of the his films, weasel. going up to Life Is Sweet, which he actually called Untitled Ninety. So now he has like like the Untitled Woody Allen project. Yeah, That's yeah. what he does now. But he was known for very odd titles. Mm. There's moments in this where I laughed out loud. Yeah, yeah. Um, just the classic, like the classic as we know in Australia, the classic whinging pom, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like just, just bitching about every little thing. And, um, but then the, the tragedy gradually reveals itself, you know, of these, mm. of these um, poor sort of working class lives and the, the wife just has to suffer through all of these indignities. And you get to the point at the end when she makes her confession, it's just heartbreaking. Mm. Yeah, you know, to say it's I don't like, love people enough. Yeah, she goes, I don't love people enough. It's like, it's the other way around. Don't you know that? Yeah. It's like, you love just fine. They're all awful to you. You know? (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. And um, Liz Smith is great, but... It's shot um, in Salford where Mike Lee grew up as well. So it's quite personal for him in that sense. But he had almost, like... A lot less control over this film than right? others because it was his first film going to the BBC, so they were very tied on, you know, how he was able to work. So he, I think, he almost feels bleak moments is more autobiographical than this film. Right, which is interesting. And then we come to 1976's Nuts in May, which is it pretty much confounds any expectation <laughs> you would have for what a Mike Lee film is. It is so funny. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, he said, uh, I think he's quoted this saying, after making two films named Bleak Moments and Hard Labour, I wanted to make something funny. Yeah. <laughs> and God, is it funny. Like, just two middle-class hippie prats go on a, uh, go on a uh, camping trip and just... It's it's so, yeah. <laughs> impose their moral fortitude upon all they can. I mean, their surname is Pratt, which kind of yeah. <laughs> puts it out there. Yeah. Well, this one was actually originally a stage play set in their house, and where they have invited someone over, so in the character Ray. But this one, they for the film, they decide to actually go out camping, mm. and um, I think it 
it's interesting because really they could be anywhere and they'd still be like in their living room. Mm, yeah. Like when Ray, you know, he's got all this outdoors, you know, around him. He could go anywhere, but he's stuck sitting in their campsite singing the song <laughs> about going to the zoo. And it's and just torturous. <laughs> and you will never get it out of your head when you oh, watch the film. So we <laughs> won't do it now. But, and yeah. it's like, and each time they ask him, the camera pulls in closer to his face. Yeah. It's like it's a closer <laughs> shot. And poor Ray is just like, the, we're, getting, we're getting tighter on Ray each time. And you feel so sorry for him. Uh, Mike Lee has those two. One, he's very, very concerned with issues of class. And yeah. seems, I, I think he kind of wears his dislike of the middle class on his sleeve. No, I, I was thinking about this before. And I don't think he dislikes any class. I think he dislikes uh, false aspiration where you want to better yourself, not, not improving who you are, but making it appear as if you're in a higher class. Mm. And I think he has a lot of contempt for people who want to look like they're better than they are. Mm. Uh, and often that happens in middle class. As a, yeah. Yeah. I, I think yeah, that's, well, that's the thing. A lot of the middle class are deluded in that way, mm. you know? Mm. But I think, I think that's the difference. Why I think that's why so many people mistakenly believe that he has contempt for certain classes and certain characters. Mm. Where it's just, I think, falseness he doesn't like. Well, there's a lot of self-delusion going on in his films mm. as well, um, with with characters, and it's also that sort of first. Um, I mean, Hardly has got a little bit of it, but it's, and and I guess Bleak Moments as well. He's really concerned on it's almost like social interaction as car crash. You yeah. know, he sets up these characters as all being really highly strung in their own way. They're disaster movies. Yeah, they yeah. are. And then you're just waiting for these corner, these you know, these points to come together. And mm. your heart is in your mouth the whole time, like, oh, God, how's this going to... No, don't. Don't say that. Don't. Mm. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, that's really prevalent in Nuts in May, but in a hilarious way. And uh, 77's Abigail's Party really, you know, put him on the map in a, in a, in a different way. And it's, it really looks like a filmed play. I mean, if you yeah, grew up on all those, you know, BBC Shakespeare adaptations and things like this, it won't look that weird. Uh, so it does look like a filmed play on a set, like a sitcom without... You know, yeah, it's very, very, yeah, shot on video, British four-camera TV play. Yeah. But, God, the acting and script, do they compensate? It's electric. It is so electric. Adults in a neighbourhood get together when one of their daughters is having a party and has to sort of get out of her house. One of Another of our self-deluded middle-class couples are throwing mm. this little shindig oh, to get there. to know their neighbours, and it's, wow, in terms of social car crashes, and it... You yeah. think it's going to be bad, and it ends up worse than mm. you can possibly imagine. Yeah, it's hard to know what you're watching when it begins because it's all very, you know, amiable and you know a little awkward. Mm. But you know, but I think from the moment Alison Sedman walks into the room as Beverly, just the way she holds herself and she puts on this record and she's you know preparing for what she thinks is going to be this amazing night, and um, you have no idea what's what's coming. Really, <laughs> I couldn't think of worse fates than to be at a party where somebody's playing Demis Roussos. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of anything worse. I think it really helped his record sales at the time. Oh, wow. I think it really. Um, this film um, was a real turning point for Mike Lee because um, it had a the first viewing. It had a pretty good audience, but by its second repeat viewing in 1979, he amassed I think around 16 million viewers. Because ITV was on strike, there were massive thunderstorms across um, Britain and um, there was something very highbrow on BBC One Mm. and Channel 4 hadn't started yet. So it was the only thing on and everyone (laughs) watched it. And it's one of Mike Lee's favourite 
but certainly not is his least favourite um, filmed. Yeah, perform- because of the uncinematic nature of it. Because yeah. it looks so much like a filmed play. Yeah, yeah, it's and you, God, I can't think of a better acting showcase for an actor than Alison Steadman in Nuts in May and Abigail's Party. You watch those two films back to back. As long as you have a little post-it note reminding you that it's the same actress. Yeah. Because you need that. It's just... My God, yeah. It's different voice, different stance, different characters, different... Yeah. Emotional... Her comic timing is just brilliant. Mm. Just... Yeah. Oh, it's... Mm. Yeah, she's, she's kind of a force of nature when you look at those two back-to-back. It's mm. amazing. Mm. Well, yeah, the next four films you did for the the BBC, Kiss of Death in 77, Who's Who in 78, Grown Ups in 80, and Home Sweet Home in 82 were... I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm reticent to say minor works because they're all so good. Is it that he hit a television high point with, with those two last two films, um, with Abigail's Party and, and Nuts in May, that it's mm. kind of like... They're really, I mean, they're, fan, they're fantastic films, they're beautiful character pieces and there are characters in there, uh, particularly Who's Who, where you see characters that you think, oh, that's completely unbelievable. Not because then there aren't people like that in real life. You see them all the time, but because people don't generally make films about them. Mm-hmm. So it's so jarring that you think that person doesn't... Wait, yes, those people do exist. <laughs> What's he doing on TV? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're, they're terrific films. They really are. Absolutely. And they're often the, you know, the first time you'll see a lot of the actors who um, have come on to be sort of um, Lee favourites, such as uh, Phil Davis appears first time in Who's Who in 1979. And... Um, and then he comes back again in Grown Ups, which is one of my favourites from 1980. It has Phil Davis, Leslie Manville for the first time, Brenda Blevin, who came back in Secrets and Lies. Um, it also has Sam Kelly, who's been in a number of his films. And it has Lindsay Duncan, who is just extraordinary. Oh, wow. Like, she's quite an icon in British um, television. In Home Sweet Home, we get Timothy Spall for the first time as well, who is almost unrecognisable. He is <laughs> very slim. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Which is... Um, which is quite something. And that has a score by Carl Davis as well, the, um, the famous British composer and conductor. So that's, that's the first time he really had a, um, a score for his film as well. Oh, okay. Because he generally wouldn't. So. Go scoreless. Hmm. I think the next big signpost in his career was 83's Mean Time, which doesn't so much screen as it sort of explodes out at you. We'll talk TV. about introducing new actors. Ah, oh, there's a young Tim Roth. There's a young Gary Oldman. There's a youngish Alfred Molina. Uh, it's wow. just amazing seeing all these guys <laughs> in this film. But it's so... I mean, the anger from... Um, uh, well, I mean, Thatcherism had just pretty much started. It was only a couple of years in. She's into her um, second term there. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah, she came okay. in in 1979. So that's when you really first start to feel the anger on Absolutely. The There's probably about four million people unemployed at this point. And, um, and the actual... The genesis of the film is really interesting because the idea came to Mike Lee he was in the bath and he was listening to the radio and there's a story about um, two kids who had committed suicide together because of un- being unemployed and he thought that was probably a little bit bleak to put on the screen so Jeez, that, when Mike Lee thinks something's too yeah. bleak to put on the screen <laughs> the, when the director of bleak moments says that's too bleak oh that's out of order <laughs> but yeah he, I think he came up with the idea of um, yeah just um, exploring you know what happens to youth where they feel like they've got nowhere to go and particularly the father and the the family in the film he's at the stage of institutionalized unemployment mm. and he will never go back to work and wow. there's 
definitely that feeling in house that there's nothing to do. They sit around on the couch or they go wandering, you know, around in the street and they fall in with unsavory types as played by Gary Oldman as Coxie, the skinhead. And um, so it's it's sad, but it's um, I think it's one of the most uplifting endings mm. and most beautiful endings of, of Mike Lee's work. It's um, beautiful solidarity between siblings and I think between Phil Daniels and, and Tim Roth. And that uplifting thing, it never comes from an external force. It's never, and now you've won the lottery. Oh, mm. things are good now. It, mm. it always stems from character. That's always where he begins and ends. I, I think possibly his most underrated film is his next one, uh, Four Days in July uh, from 1985. I, I absolutely love the, the juxtaposition of the Northern Ireland conflict, which is sort of the inspiration for the film and w- where it's set, with uh, the central characters and it's some of the most potent metaphors he's ever had in any of his films. Those, you know, where the, that conflict is played out within these interpersonal relationships. Yeah, it was. Um, it also meant this film. Um, Mike Lee went over to Northern Ireland and shot it entirely there. And the opening um, shot uh, is very cinematic. Actually, it's um, a shot down an alleyway of kids and dogs running, you know, across mm. into different streets, and then you have a truck. Um, you know, filled with soldiers going down after them as if it's part of everyday life. And there's, um, he doesn't talk too much about the troubles, but there will be, you, you know, you look out a window and see a soldier with a gun just walking down the street and that kind of thing. So there's always that presence, but how the, the a Catholic couple who are expecting a baby and a Protestant couple who are expecting a baby, um, how they live, I think, within this and... Yeah, no, it's, mm. it all came from an idea of Stephen Ray. The actor said mm. to um, Mike Lee, you have to make a film about this. And and he actually oh. has a small cameo role too. And um, mm. yeah, it's definitely worth seeking out. It's quite an important film, I think, in his filmography. And particularly taking him out of London too. And yeah, that's right. It's unique concerns. in that sense. I think uh, certainly a contender for uh, the most likeable characters he's ever had on screen. Uh the characters played by Phil Davis and Ruth Sheen in 88's High Hopes. His first feature film since Bleak Moments. In That's 17 right. years, years, yeah. Return yeah. And to a cinema where he would stay. And you just want to... They are lovely, aren't you they? You just want to hang out with them. They're almost oh. precursors to um, Jim Broadbent and Ruth Sheen in yeah. Another Year, you find. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even you know, going down to where Shirley, like Ruth Sheen's character, is a gardener. That's what yes. she does. And so there are these beautiful overtones. And, but oh, it has yeah. a shot in, a, in the birthday party scene that is absolutely reminiscent of what he's um, done with Leslie Manville in Another Year mm. with the slow close-up. Of the old lady? Yeah, yes. of Edna Dory. And there's a sound drowns out. And I think that was actually a, um, a choice at the time because they were having problems with that scene with one of the actors who um and so they couldn't actually end the scene so that was what he chose to do and he thought and i i think i've heard mike lee say that oh this will, shot will be studied for years and years you know with this editorial choice but actually it was just something to get and the scene done wow. but it's interesting now that he's done a very similar thing with yeah, another year and, that, and it's yeah it's incredible <laughs> and i like that uh, after kicking off his career with bleak moments and hard labor he goes from high hopes to life is sweet. He's really hitting the positive <laughs> at this stage. Uh, i got to say, if you've never seen a Mike Lee film before, you only think you know how good an actor Timothy Spall is. Because mm. he's great in everything, but in Mike Lee's films, <laughs> he's, he's just... In, life is in this, it's... 
I can't even describe it. Like, you have to see it to believe it. <laughs> he looks like a creature from outer space yeah. from the start. <laughs> like Absolutely. who's been eaten up by the eighties and spat out. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think Timothy Spall and Mike Lee sat down. They said, "All right, let's." You know, it's almost based on a disjockey like DJ. You know, someone who d- is not real. They're just yeah. you know mm. this you know heightened everything and. I know. This is my favourite Mike Lee film. Is it really? Yeah, well, up there with Naked as well, but mm. they're like, you know, uh, they couldn't be more different in some ways, but I don't know, I just get so much pleasure out of watching this family, you know, which is made up of um, Jim Broadbent and Alison Stedman as the parents of twin daughters played by Jane Horrocks and Claire Skinner. And Claire Skinner has got to be one of my favourite actresses after I discovered her in this and in the last scenes of Naked as well. I don't know. There's just the beautiful, just the way they interact, the way, you know, it, it feels like they are a family and they have, mm. they know each other that well. But I don't know. There's beautiful pathos to this film as well. And um, It really yeah. does sort of, between High Hopes and this, it sort of nails the Michael E. style of bittersweet mm. working class people and, and, you know, just sort of getting on with life and... Mm. Mm. And there's something really charming, but there's an edge to it as well. And then, yeah, and then there's bits of just outright nutty parody, like with Tim Spall's character running mm. his ridiculous restaurant and trying to come on the waitresses. Yeah. And, stuff. <laughs> and the menu is just just disgusting. <laughs> oh, but the typical menu of cuisine of the eighties, I think. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, I think it's um, something I really got from from this film is that the characters who who you like and the ones that seem to survive are the ones who can actually laugh at themselves and not take themselves so seriously. The yeah. ones that can't are the ones that really struggle and mm. are often very aggressive or unlikable. And I think that's true. Like, and often um, Mike Lee will um, compare couples as they go to bed and what they talk about in bed and how they reflect on their day and if they make mm. jokes and things. It's, it's a really lovely way of them sharing their experiences, but others, you know, will just turn over or they, you know might be a bit nasty or something but yeah i think this this is something really beautiful between i think alison stedman and jim broadbent in mm. this film another one of his great couples and it's the first time we see i think well, no, the second time we see thulis in the mike lee film because he wasn't a short just yeah, before the short and curly. well spe- speaking of thulis 1993 saw what i think is his masterpiece naked uh when i think of films that define the 90s like the greats of the decade i think of like Pulp Fiction and Dead Man and Lost Highway and Train Spotting and Naked absolutely stands up with those. It is almost completely unlike all of his other films. Uh, like it feels jet black compared mm. to anything else Mike Lee has ever done. It's just there. It's vaguely apocalyptic. Mm. It, there's something. There's some kind of downward spiral end of the world, beyond all hope, you, you know, abandon all hope, all ye who enter here kind mm. of feel to it. Mm. And Fuelist just controls the screen. His performance is amazing. Yeah. And to the fact that a lot of his speeches were yeah. self-created and imp- improvised and yeah. it's just like this. He read so, so many books, I think. On. He was totally immersed in this role. And a lot of the um, theories he actually came up with by himself and then found out that they're actually, you know, well circulated around <laughs> conspiracy theories and barcodes and I think Mike Lee gave him the greatest gift ever yeah. given by a director to an actor. And then some. Mm. 
just let the guy riff for two and a quarter hours, basically. Um, and he totally earns it. It's uh, yeah. it's one of the best performances. No, there's nothing indulgent about it. Like yeah. it's just it's it's to- it it absolutely comes out of his character. And with um, Leslie Sharp, who's terrific as well. Mm. Um, but I think Catherine Cartledge, she just oh, she's just amazing on screen. She's so vulnerable and crazy. But mm. I think she's so. There is an unhinged quality to her, isn't there? Yeah, but and I, I've heard, um, I've read stories of her on set, and she was just dancing around, having the best time of her life. You know, in between <laughs> takes, she's not, she's nothing like the character Sophie that she plays. Mm. She just, yeah, she loved life and everything. And um, and, and sadly, she passed away in two thousand and two, so she only was in another two of Mike Lee's films. But I think she was just really gelled so well with his style and I think Naked was the first one that really got a lot of Mike Lee a lot of attention he won Best Director and they also won Best Actor at Cannes in 1994 mm. so it meant that he had this really strong reputation to go into his next film which was yeah 96's Secrets and Lies which yeah I do really really like but I find it interesting that it was so successful or also certainly popular in uh, America given it's almost the closest come to a melodrama. I think it's the only instance I can think of in any Mike Lee film where a character gives a speech about what's going on and how everyone feels. And that big Secrets and Lies speech that Timothy Spall gives is the first time I think, yeah, feelings are acknowledged that directly. I mean, am, am I wrong? Am I wrong about that? It didn't stand out to me like that. It no. seemed to, again, come out of character. I adored Secrets and Lies. I didn't see it very long ago. I think it's almost the apogee of his social car crash films. Mm, it is absolutely. almost the highest point of that sort of subgenre of his work. You know, it's like you are just aching at what is going to happen when all of these. Well, definitely since Abigail's party, anyway. Yeah, yeah. And it's another party. It's a birthday party. Yeah. Too, so. And Brenda Blethyn is just so horribly self-centered, and everything. <laughs> and it's. Yeah, I, look, I thought it was really impressive, and it's about the things we keep from each other. And um, yeah, and God, I wouldn't have thought self-centered. I don't know. Really? No. Oh, I find her horribly self-centered. Oh, I just find her so. She's so sad, but she's she. I, she just wants to give to everyone. She has had really? to give. You know, she had to look after her brother like a son, and she had then she had her daughter very young, so she's always been a mother and always having to give. And then finally, she has this moment to really find herself and I think that's what's so wonderful but by the time when she wants to bring um, Hortense to the party because she wants to reveal it to her family that she has done something wonderful that this is you know part of her is in this child that you know that she had to give away and I think I don't know I actually get quite moved whenever I think about this I get chills if I see a trailer for this film or anything to do with it there's a famous nine minute take in this film where they where she and um, Hortense first really speak and it's um, it breaks your heart it does it's just all the sweethearts and everything I I think you're right it it, definitely some of the subject matter lends Mm. itself to melodrama but I think it pulls back from that um, Mm. because of his naturally um, observational Style. I think this film did so well in America because at that point, I don't know if it still is the case now, but it was illegal to track down um, your birth parents um, if you'd been adopted. Right. Um, it wasn't part of their system and it was just starting to be, I think, in Britain. So there was that just, you know, being, amazement of being able to do this. And I think um, that's what really kind of struck a nerve with American audiences. 
Well, yeah, and then he goes to uh, the following year. Uh, another one of my favourites of his really? films. Really? Yeah, Career Girls. Wow, it's my it. least favourite. Really? That's, Is it really? It feels so jarring. It's very different in style to his other, other yeah, yeah. works. Well, that's what As I like. I like he's really experimenting with his own style there. Camera's kinetic, and I, I couldn't work out why the characters were all so hopped up when they were younger. It's like they'd all sniffed lines of cocaine. They're all insane, and it's like... Turn it down a little bit. It just felt very over the top. And then, I, as well as feeling over the top and different in style, there was something that felt kind of relatively minor about it as well. It kind of felt like a con- confection. It felt wow. like these kind of girls were reminiscing about their, their time as youngsters and then kind of running in, you know, strangely running into all the people they knew. And it's kind of like, okay, well, even though we grow up and move, you know, and move forward in our lives, maybe we don't move as far forward as we think. This is one of my favourites as well. It's a film I could quote. In, in its entirety, like I really love the all the heightened behaviour and the way they all talk. Particularly Hannah, played by Cat and Cartledge, and um, I don't know. And I love that going between their memories and sort of the present day, and you can see these mannerisms. You know, like that they're, they're all still there. They're all still the same person, even though it's about nine years on. And I think it's like they're suppressing them, really. Isn't yeah, it? and they haven't really spoken in that time, and so there's so much awkwardness when they first, mm. you know, between sort of what would be the first couple of hours of their time together. And but yeah, what's interesting is uh, 99's Topsy Turvy, which is a biopic. It's about Gilbert and Sullivan. Now I haven't seen this, but it feels so ridiculously different to everything he's ever done. it's. I want to say that it is, because I've said that about two or three films so far in this podcast. Really? I don't want to keep saying, no, this but, is the one that's different. But in terms of, like, like Career Girls is the same in, in character yeah. and in, in observation, but it's different in style. Yeah. This is just, like, from, what, from the outside looking in, it's about real people, which mm. was never something he'd sort of done before. He'd never done a biopic. Well, he couldn't it, build it from the ground up. Yeah, exactly. So, which, which makes it a very interesting mm. film. It's much longer than his other films. It's much... Yeah. It's a costume drama. Oh, your costume mm. story. Yeah. It's, a, it's about artists. It's, it's about, a musical, too. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it's so incredibly different to anything he's done. I mean, Vera Drake shares the biopic sort of and period piece kind mm. of mm. Um, thing in common. But other than that, I am right about that, aren't I? Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, so what did you think? Well, oh, I'm, I'm a huge it. fan, but I love Gilbert and Sullivan, so this was a slam dunk for me. But yeah, I think it's a terrific film. So how does it like? How does he go into like? I can't, I can't even imagine it from anything else I've seen of his. It just well, I don't know. I think this is the one where he there was extensive research done into every character that you see on screen. There is a backstory. For example, Kevin McKidd, who um, is known for being Train Spotting, and he has a, most, a beautiful singing voice. Every every actor sings in this as well which and Shirley Henderson also has a beautiful singing voice mm. but his character is wearing um something around his neck that the person he's playing actually wore on stage like there's this attention to detail which is incredible and I think they actually won an academy award for this film for makeup because it was what well, they they actually um, managed to get hold of some a sample of Victorian makeup and they went to a lab and found out what was in it and made their own so everything is authentic and but it's also not like a straight biopic either like characters like such as Gilbert's father is introduced without an introduction then disappears again so there's mm. it's not done you know like a Hollywood biopic in any means and it's long scenes of rehearsal and performance that you probably wouldn't have 
you know, in another biopic. And yeah. do, do you think it was a relief for him to have the backstories done for him for a change? Because <laughs> these people I actually think it was almost lives. more work because really? you've got to, you know, and you've got people to answer for as well, I think, you know, mm. people who know the story and know the music so well and want to see it done right. So, and I think... Um, Mike Lee's like pet project, which I think he wants to do one day, is a biopic of um, Turner, the painter. So that would be another. Is he a huge Gilbert and Sullivan fan? Is yeah, he went a lot as a child to see a lot of the musicals, and I think it's something very dear to him. So I, I don't see him taking on a project of that scale without it having a lot of personal connection no, too. No, no, no. Well, yeah, and uh, three years later, All or Nothing in two thousand and two. This is uh, this is a pretty tough watch, I think, but it's so rewarding again i want to sort of talk about the ending without talking about it but it's so it it is so sweet and rewarding and i get the impression that he is such a pragmatist but he's also an optimist he does see the best in people even whilst acknowledging how horrible they can be well that's the thing all of his films your sympathies for characters shift various times Mm. that's one of his genius moves is that he's not this this guy's good this person's bad like that very rarely occurs um, most of the time, you're um, you're introduced to somebody, even within some of his half hour stuff he did for TV. Yeah, you know, you're introduced to somebody who seems horrific, and then by the end of the film, you feel so so much for them. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of it's one of his um, little magic tricks, I think. Yeah, this is. Uh, yeah, I find this the one of the toughest to watch. Definitely the toughest of his features to watch. It's uh, set in a tenement building so it was actually one that was about to be demolished so they had free reign of the whole um, facility when they were filming and then in 2004 Vera Drake so you haven't seen this one no I haven't seen this one either we've got Imelda Staunton and Phil Davis again yeah Yeah. well Imelda Staunton hasn't been in it before no no I say like Phil Davis oh you like them yeah It's his second film based on true events, yes? Um, I think loosely based. I don't think they're based on a person per se. I think how it works so well is that Vera Drake, Melda Staunton's character, she doesn't think she's doing anything wrong. She's just helping girls out. That's how she puts it. It's as Mm. simple as that. And that's what's so heartbreaking. And and, um, Michael Etzini had to go to her and explain that what the film was about and to make sure she was comfortable with um, representing that on screen. And she was the only one really, um, particularly within the family of characters, that, yeah, she was the only one who knew really what was fundamentally um, in this film. And one actor that we ha- I don't think we've mentioned yet is Peter White, who plays oh. the detective in this film, and he apparently finds it very hard to get out of character, this actor, like, more so than any the others working on a Lee thing. He actually has to come back and see Lee after a pro- project's finished to try and get out of it. Because he commits so really? intensely, wow. does, yeah. Does Lee just give him another character to go on? With? I don't know <laughs> how they work it out, but that's often the case. I think Leslie Sharp had a similar problem after Naked too. But I think generally people can distance themselves, and they're told always to refer to their character by name. Never, I did this, yeah. but you know, um, Vera did this or Sid did this. Mm. So his next film was 2007's Happy Go Lucky, which was the first Mike Lee film I ever saw. Same uh, year, actually. Yeah. We have a very similar history with Mike Lee because we both saw Happy Go Happy Go Lucky was our first um, experience separately, but also both of us had never seen a Mike Lee film until we met our present partners. 
Yes, who are both Mike Lee obsessive. Massively Mike, uh, massive Mike Lee fans who so. introduced us to his works. Which is a wonderful thing. Yeah. <laughs> the joy of modern relationships. Uh, in film geek circles. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect with this film and I, I really loved it. Sally Hawkins and Eddie Marsden are just amazing. I don't think I'd ever seen anything like Eddie Marsden's performance as the unhinged uh, uh, driving instructor. I, just, I really hadn't seen anything like that in a film before. Mm. It was really, really quite stunning. It's so angry. Yeah. Mm. Angry and, of the world. And sad and pathetic. Um, and she is, yeah, I, I thought her performance was so magnetic. Mm. And, like, but by the same token, could get annoying, you know? Like, that character and that performance could have grated. Yeah, yeah. But to, like, just making bad jokes. But there's something instantly affable about it that you just get. Mm. Mm. And her, and that beneath this kind of bobble-headed happiness and endless optimism is a steely determination. And I think that's what grounds it. Mm. It's like when she's trying to, you know, trying to turn or trying to communicate with Scott and trying to get him back to a normal level and trying to get him on her, you know, trying to sort of get through to him. And then there's a point where she just realizes it's not going to happen. Mm. Well, I think there's something that that's instantly relatable to her. Like, you know, if 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 um, you encounter someone who you know has these views or also it's so aggressive about something or you know you kind of want to tease them out a bit and actually get them to just. I don't know, like connect with you, and but there's these wonderful moments where you know he says, "Let me tell you what's wrong about so and so," and she's like, "Yeah, go on then," and you know it's just sort of egging them on in a way you like, "Oh God, don't do that." But in the same way, it's like like when she's in the bookstore and the um the the um salesman in there, he um he's not con- connecting with her at all, and so she's sort of just trying to get something out. There's of that him. determination, just, yeah, and yeah. seeing the like you know she believes that there's good you know to be found like in everyone that she meets and I think it's quite a lovely positive thing for a Mike Lee film and something my partner pointed out actually that I kind of agree with I think he nails the girls relationship a lot better than career girls for me like I I really liked Sally Hawkins and Alex is it Alex Ziegerman? Alexis Ziegerman, yeah. Alexis Ziegerman's um, yeah. dynamic. Yeah. I'd never seen her in a film. I don't think she was ever in a film before this. I don't think and so. And she's fantastic. Like, yeah. I'm surprised I haven't seen a lot more of her. Yeah, she's just natural on screen. Mm. I think they, they have a very Naturally sarcastic, yet really friendly and warm. Like, yeah, just very cool. I couldn't believe it when I saw Eddie Marsden in this film because he plays a uh, character Reg in Vera Drake, who is the sweetest, loveliest wow. man who, who's poor but won't ask for things, you know, and is very humble and lovely. And then to see him as this vitriol spouting, like yeah, rage filled, but very sad, boy. sort of lonely it's, character as well. I it's just, like a uh, wounded little boy, really. You know, yeah. it's like someone that betrayed or disappointed as a very uh, young person and mm. never emotionally developed beyond mm. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then a few months ago, he's finished a recent film, Another Year, which is in my top three of his films, along with Career Girls and, and Naked. Mm-hmm. is one of my favourites of, of his films. And to me, I said this in my review at the time, uh, it feels like he's a Christmas carol. Could have been that I saw it at Christmas and had all this stuff going around in my head. But I really feel like all of the supporting characters are what could have been. Like, mm. you know, if you'd let yourself go off the rails here, you would turn into this person or you could have become that person. Mm. And they're all sort of cautionary tales. And yeah, I kind of got that vibe from it. 
I wonder how Peter White went letting go of that character. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if he's still in it, you know. Oh, All God. credit to him. I think he's brilliant. He's just mm, um, yeah. Everyone's so good in this film. I loved Another Year. It's in my top three too, I think. Yeah. Um, with Probably with Naked and Secrets and Lies. But it seems to be uh, the people who are more content in this film. I think I've heard some criticism that, you know, the film's sort of anti-singledom and it's like if you're not mm. coupled up and married, it's like it's not. I think it's all about being content with ageing. Yeah. And the acceptance of the passage of time and just, you know, just getting through it and, and being content. Or not, not looking for other things to plug the gaps in your life. Like, I'm unhappy, but if I get into a relationship, I'll be happy. Mm. Or if I buy this car and can go on holidays, I'll be happy. You know, just mm. trying to look for all these external things to plug a hole, you know, deep inside of you. Mm. Just find it in the family and friends around you. Um, yeah, I think it's a very, I think it's a very hopeful film. Um, in some ways, as we were saying before, it feels like almost like an unofficial sequel to High Hopes. Yeah, it could be Cyril mm. and Shirley. You know, um, what is it? You know, twenty years on. Mm. Mm. But um, I think it's Leslie Manville's greatest performance. I think she's been in the best seven of Mike Lee's films and she's been different every time. Mm. But this time it's just, she's encapsulated something. Like even the first moment you see her on screen at work, and I think that's really an important um, part of Mike Lee's films is that he shows characters at work, albeit briefly, just to see what they're like in that environment and then when they're at home. And Mm. the same thing happens in, in Life is Sweet. But there's so much pathos and sadness in her character and um and the final shot is just something oh, you mentioned great beauty yeah you mentioned that before just yeah just as you say holding on her and being able to reflect on the title i think it's the most perfect title he could have given this film for someone who you know would give silly titles to projects i think he's just yeah that another year is perfect it's just what happens it's all about yeah on. the more things change the more they stay the same yeah. you're gonna have another year like this next year well, so. even Imelda Staunton's um, character at the very beginning oh, says, yeah. you know, nothing changes, you know. I think it's a very beautiful film. I think um, Ruth Sheen and Jim Broadbent, you know, almost made for each other, I think. And um, and it's lovely to see Karina um, Fernandez as well from being the flamenco dancer in Happy Go Lucky appear as, um, as Joe, the son's new girlfriend, I think, yeah. She's amazing. As soon as she comes on screen, she just mm. lights it up. And yeah, I never made that connection. Yeah, they were the same person. It's a transfer. Even after I was told, I didn't make. The, I didn't <laughs> believe it. They were just wow, too different. Yeah. No, I didn't get that. I didn't notice that at all. Yeah. Wow. He seems to like doing that, doesn't he? Like we've talked, we've mentioned that a few times in this podcast. How he'll cast somebody and then cast the shadow, almost the shadow version of that character, mm. or. Uh, casting against variation. type but it's the type that he set up a few yeah. films earlier yeah, yeah. And it's all you know based on people they know but it's always got to have something of themselves in there too and I think it's this wonderful combinations that he's able to to put on screen which is why they're so relatable and how why you as an audience really want to you know react so strongly to how you think they should be acting in mm. that circumstance yeah. and you know so um and again, full of those awkward, socially fraught moment, car crash moments as well. Uh, that are just like every <laughs> every time Peter White and Leslie Manville are in the same room, you just want to close your eyes and run. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like oh, it's so horrible and heartbreaking and hilarious all at the same time. Yeah. So, what are your top three? My top three: um, Life is Sweet and Naked. 
totally up there. And I think another year I've seen it twice now, and it's. I think every film of his should be seen at least twice, mm. um, but more more than that, hopefully. Mm. But I don't know, Career Girls is a very special film for me too. So I don't know, it's a toss-up between those two. Thank you so much for coming on the yeah. podcast, Katie, and for spending the last two and a half years preparing me for today's podcast. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> now your job is done. You're free to go. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 wait, wait. <laughs> no, well, thank uh, you very much for having me. It's been wonderful. Pleasure. 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 And we'll see you all next month. Keep watching stuff. <laughs>